Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk About X podcast. In our small but cozy studio in the basement of the X building, we invite other students and experts to join us to discuss topics that are interesting for you, the students of the TU Delft. My name is Nico. My name is Joseph. And we are your hosts for today. Today, we are talking about revenge porn. Revenge porn is the act of distributing sexually explicit content without consent, commonly as a way to humiliate or intimidate a person. However, Revenge porn is not always the cause, and there is some debate about how its definition could be better be defined as image-based sexual abuse. So today, we are not focusing on the intentions behind it, and instead, we are taking a look at the current social and cultural context in which it occurs, and what are the social structures in place reinforcing this act. How did this type of assault start? What narrative su surrounds the issue? What are some of the biases attached to gender, and what practices perpetrate the situation? To help us answer all these questions, we are joined today by Dr. Sana Kuvuts. Thank you for coming in, Sana. After obtaining her master's degree in gender and ethnicity, Sana became a doctor of philosophy in gender studies at Utrecht University. Currently, she is a senior lecturer at Erasmus University, where she teaches courses on the topic of media studies and the power of the image. Thank you for joining us today and welcome to the show. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to um, talking to you about this I think rather more complicated topic than it seems. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess uh, maybe before we go into detail, uh, could you maybe talk a little bit about uh, what the power of the media and images in our culture is? Uh, how does it maybe relate to gender as well? Well, that's an even bigger topic, <laughs> but uh, indeed it's, it, it, it will be the angle from which I approach this. Um, I have spent quite a lot of time um, thinking about uh, researching the relationship between gender and representation, gender and media. Gender and media representations are related um, in a, a number of different ways, one of, which, uh, one of which I think sounds familiar. This is the topic of representation, right? And representation has been a topic um, in a lot of activist circles for quite some time. So this um, most obviously has to do with, for instance, visibility. So the question, why are there no gay couples in Hollywood cinema before a certain time, right? Or is it, and why is it a problem that in uh, popular media we find stereotypical or cliche representations of, for instance, women taking up mostly maternal roles or nurturing roles, men taking up the roles of the provider or the superhero or, or positions of power. So what most people... Um, intuitively understand about the relationship between gender and representation is that the media provide us with models, with images for how to live, uh, how to understand yourself, how to shape your identity, uh, how to shape your place in the world. So that would be sort of the stereotyping um, but also prototyping uh, role of media. There we find causes for concern. For instance, when we look at the way that toys are marketed for boys and girls, uh, placing girls and making girls or driving girls to identify with this very pink world of makeup and mm -hmm. child rearing and boys identifying with, well, the rest of the world, which is quite a lot, right? All kinds of professions, all kinds of sports, all kinds of outdoorsy activities, etc. But I would say that the relationship between gender and representation is even more complicated than that. One of the ways in which gender and representation are entangled with one another is in very deeply embedded 
systems of representation. Uh, this is the realm where you can talk about images uh, working in a way as a kind of language, a language that has a type of grammar that operates according to a set of rules and regulations that we need in order to interpret images in more or less the same way. And, and that's what makes us all part of the same culture, right? That we more or less with space for debate, but we more or, or less can agree on the meaning of media images. Well, that kind of um, image as language thinking also um, allows for the analysis of particular conventional and structural ways in which visual representation positions and shapes roles in much more subtle and therefore much more difficult to recognize, critique and resist um, ways that rather than only offering stereotypes. For instance, when we talk about uh, visual representation uh, and we talk about, for instance, the objectification of, of women in the media, then you can think um, about the stereotypical representation of women, well, as either uh, sex objects or being required to fulfill some sort of beauty standard in some way. Um, but when you look at classical Hollywood cinema, you also see a lot of conventions in the way that, for instance, camera angles are used that draw the viewer's eye to identify with the perspective of male protagonists, right? So um, without knowing this, many of us have been trained to look at the mm -hmm. world through media through the eyes of, well, some imaginary, but uh, for us, a sort of identifiable man, which is a way of centering a particular and limited perspective. Um, so that's another way in which gender and media are related. It has to do with which perspectives the media offers and how those perspectives center or marginalize uh, different life experiences. And a third way, I think, is that it's important to realize that um, image culture has also produced um, certain ways of looking. To participate in culture, you have to learn how to decipher these images. How to communicate through it. Yeah, yeah, but also how to, how to interpret, how to read a movie, right? So right. you internalize ways of looking, ways of reading um, that are uh, in both explicit and implicit ways uh, profoundly mm -hmm. gendered, or that would be the feminist cultural studies, the feminist media studies perspective on yeah, the, the, the multiple and complex relationships between gender and media. And, and I suppose that the, that last point that you made is becoming exponentially more relevant as time goes on now with the introduction of such image-based media that we see. I mean, you know, the, the golden screen Hollywood has existed for decades now, but mm -hmm. things like social media, I mean, like this is making the ability of people to interpret these implicit meanings behind images so much more important, right? Yeah, well, um, with the um, um, acceleration of the circulation of images, these questions that have been important for quite some time only gain more importance and, mm -hmm. and more urgency, you mm -hmm. could say. Yeah. I think that's a good segue then into the more uh, the main point of this podcast with, with social media and, and this distribution of imagery that we're talking about into... Uh, Revenge porn and uh, this this kind of cultural interpretation of sexual imagery and and how sex has been portrayed through this these implicit uh, image based practices that you're discussing. So, is there something that you could tell us more about this? About historically, how has uh, sexuality and sex been portrayed in media? Should come as no surprise to you that with the introduction of 
every um, new uh, um, technology, people or medium, you could say, um, people have always um, been quick to also use this medium to portray, display, and look at uh, naked bodies um, and uh, sexual representations of um, sexual acts. That's nothing new, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually compared, uh, let's say, comparatively recently that um, portrayals of nudity became taboo. I mean, for the for Europe, this was after the Middle Ages only. Uh, before that, nudity was not necessarily in itself taboo, which is not to say that it was free-for-all, <laughs> like super <laughs> yeah. queer, feminist uh, utopia. No, we have never lived in a feminist utopia, unfortunately. But it wasn't like that. But this uh, taboo on nudity mm-hmm. is is pretty recent, actually. Uh, yeah, let's say around 1500, with the advent and the... the um, development of cultural institutions like museums simultaneously also developed the hidden museums, the basements of the museums. Mm. What was in the basements of the museums? Well, that's what was deemed um, uh, unsuitable for public consumption. That's what was deemed potentially harmful to look at. uh, And that included pornographic um, depictions. Um, Depictions of nudity, of ungodly acts, so to say. Right. and the secret museum of sexuality, um, I think, isn't a sign of sexuality. I mean, this is a sort of Foucaultian argument, right? This isn't a sign of sexuality being repressed so much as it being um, disciplined in a certain way. So given a particular place in society and in the human consciousness um, as something that is to take place in the private sphere, as something that is to take place uh, only in those ways um, deemed proper and appropriate. Um, So this uh, um, basement, the secret museum of sexuality, of course, is also um, a sort of materialization of the marginalization and the expulsion of ways of being sexual that don't fit within the patriarchal heteronormative framework of sex. Uh, I'm guessing also uh, talking about this patriarchal uh, way of seeing things, uh, the people making these decisions back then based on like the common jobs uh, men versus women had affected also what was deemed um, inappropriate and what was deemed appropriate, right? Yeah, and this of course in part um, has has been uh, decided and controlled top-down, but has also always been largely been a matter of internalized self-discipline. So some uh, norms that are reinforced by, well, us reproducing them uh, in abiding by them. So it's not just like the ways of looking at media are also gendered. Uh, Gender is uh, both constructed in the media and constructed in our ways of engaging with media representations. Um, Pornography is a similar thing, I would say. is part of the construction of proper and improper sexuality, um, but part of the enforcing of that proper and improper sexuality is, well, through ourselves, understanding ourselves, um, valuing and evaluating our own behavior and that of others based on those same norms, right? So shame, for instance, what do you, which of your um, desires do you feel ashamed of and which not? Well, the very experiencing of that shame is participating within that discourse of sexuality. Maybe uh, then it's also nice to talk about how... Uh, these depictions have been different towards women and towards men and like 
as well the reaction of women and men towards pornography in the media. Has that changed at all in the last years? Um, well, I, I think the most well-known, famous feminist um, position on pornography is that taken by the by radical feminists in the 1980s and 90s during what uh, is referred to sometimes as the feminist porn wars or the feminist sex wars. Um, the radical feminist position on pornography basically uh, fought for banning porn, right? They argued that pornography should be banned. And then that way certain feminists found themselves Oddly, uh, in the same camp with conservative politicians who also right. wanted to ban porn, but mm -hmm. for a different reason. Um, conservative politicians called for the banning of porn because they deemed pornography in itself to be um, improper, indecent, um, a threat to the soul, right? Um, uh, an attack on propriety. The feminist and the anti radical anti porn feminists had. A different argument. They said that within patriarchal society, which is a society in which men and women do not have the same amount of power, do not have the same amount of sexual agency, the same amount of uh, power to decide what sexual um, practices they do and do not wish to participate in, not the same access also to their own authentic desires, that in that setting, pornography and and actually, fundamentally, heterosexual sex, this was the argument of radical feminists, but heterosexual sex could not be equal. Um, and that pornography in that uh, patriarchal setting was by definition a form of sexual assault. And so this is feminists like Andrea Dworkin, Catherine McKinnon, um, they argued that well, within the patriarchal society that they lived in, and I think that they would argue we are still living in, um, Pornography is the theory and rape is the practice. This was their rallying call. And for this reason, they called for a ban on pornography altogether. This became the cliche feminist position on pornography. However, um, the feminist porn wars were not just a war of feminists with other people, but it was a, a big struggle within feminism. Um, Pro-sex feminists like, um, for instance, Gail Rubin argued that actually the problem is not pornography. Um, it is the dominance of patriarchal um, and male-dominated representations within pornography that participated in the sexual objectification and marginalization of women. And feminist pornographers already in the 80s, like Candida Royale, Annie Sprinkle are some very famous names, um, they said, we don't need less porn, we need better porn. And so they uh, fought or participated in... Um, producing porn differently, pornography that's centered on women's desires, pornography that, uh, that intervened at the level of, um, yeah, let's say the, the production of pornography, so by making sure that porn performers were well taken care of, that porn performers um, had agency over their own uh, limitations, that consent became a very central topic um, in porn production as well. So this was an intervention on that level. But they also intervened at an artistic level. So they, they experimented with different ways of showing pleasure, different ways of representing desire that didn't center on well, the male gaze, is there mm -hmm. the word that's used a lot, um, but they tried to get to, to figure, to represent, to uh, make experiential um, yeah, women's pleasure and desire. 
still somewhat reductive perhaps uh, because binary right <laughs> what <laughs> is women's mm -hmm. desire whose women who's are included here yeah. yes who's um, to talk for everyone as well yeah yeah well and, and someone like gail rubin would also say um actually um this also uh, threatens to marginalize all kinds of like kinky fantasies you know that may look at the surface level at, re mm -hmm. as re at reproducing patriarchal relations but that actually um can serve at a psychological level as a sort of liberation i mean it's a complicated conversation but there have been feminist intervention in pornography for, for quite some time trying to um, add um, new and better representations of the diversity of pleasures and desires uh, within the yeah frame of uh, western porn yeah definitely uh something that you mentioned that i think it's like super important is uh is consent Mm -hmm. uh, something that comes into play as well with uh, revenge porn. Uh, I guess uh, it being a type of assault, uh, there's going to be a victim and there's going to be a perpetrator. Uh, actually, uh, a study by Exeter University found out that three out of four victims are female. So maybe we could talk a, bit, a little bit about how, how women are held uh, to different standards than men or how all this structure ha have contributed to them being more of a target revenge porn really complicates a bit this uh, somewhat uh, dualistic view of feminist positions on porn right so is porn bad for women or can pornography also be used to empower women and because here uh, in, in in this feminist debate it was very much about the safety of performers and about the question of whether pornography would also inspire sexual assault uh, within uh, women's lives um, but here we're talking about something different right revenge porn is by definition based on a sort of sexual, usually self-representation or, or, or uh, nudity, uh, a production of, 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 of nude images for which the person who is shown in those images has consented at some point, has participated in, um, I mean, by and large, right? Uh, taking uh, nude pictures of someone without their consent has always been illegal and has always uh, been punishable. But revenge porn is very much um, a challenge legally because really... What is going on here? Right? Where is the assault and where is the victimization? Although we all intuitively feel, of course, that there's, someone there's an is victimized yes. here, right? I'm not calling him to I'm not trying to get to a point where we say, oh yeah, really, you know, what are all these women worried about? And men, one in four is still a lot. I also looked this up in the Dutch legal dictionary, and it's quite interesting that in the Netherlands at the moment, if the Dutch legal dictionary online is up, to, up date, to date, which I don't <laughs> know. Um, but um, uh, it still states that wrack um, porno, revenge pornography, um, is only at the moment punishable as a copyright offense, right? So the sharing um, of images without the consent of the maker based on their um, intellectual uh, property rights. And in revenge porn, there's something else going on. So, so what, vi what is the violation here? And the violation here um, exists in a in a really interesting entanglement between the domains of um, uh, social institutions, uh, cultural representation, technological developments, and the law, I would say. Which is that what's going on here is that these images are being shared without consent, so they are moving from one um, um, realm of someone's digital social circle, so private exchange, to another digital social circle, right? So they're moving from the private into the semi-public or totally public. Um, 
So that's that's a violation there. But what is so violating about it, or 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 why this can feel so threatening and so violating, is I think also related to the fact that it's still very common to think about sex as a kind of transaction, uh, the transactional model of sexuality, where sex is conceived of as something that women give and that mm, men receive. Yeah. yeah. Um, that, me- that women give um, or uh, that's something that is taken from women and that men receive or that men take, um, together with a sort of ideology that a woman's sexual value in patriarchal tradition, women's value um, has been very much connected to her sexual value, as, as problematic as that is, and even though um, most of us no longer believe that, there's still this sort of subconscious idea that um, uh, women's sexual value is uh, important and that this diminishes the more partners that she has had yeah. or the more people that have seen her. Yeah, I, I guess a uh, perf- uh, very explicit example would be the uh, the notion that uh, women should get uh, to marriage without having had sex before, like yes. this whole idea of purity attached yes. to, the, the yes. to their value. Yeah, well, or the notion that a woman indeed is that, that a pure woman is a woman who has not yeah. had sex yet, right? And I, uh, yeah, and yeah. I guess it's something that's changed uh, in the last years and like new generations probably have changed the way they think about it, but it's something that's been held yes. up to up to re- super recently. Yeah. But um, um, there's still something potentially deeply shameful about um, a woman who is revealed to be sexual, to have an act on sexual desires, a woman's nudity, so a woman um, unwillingly uh, becoming a sexual object for people who she does not consent to, um, well, uh, look at her and take pleasure in her body in that way. Um, so that's where revenge porn, I think, becomes very complicated because it also has to do with the technology with which these images are circulated. Uh, once, uh, no, once an image is, as we say, on the internet, it doesn't disappear anymore. So um, there's also something very uncontrollable about the circulation of these images once they begin to circulate through digital social networks, right? On social media, for instance, and we have. In the Netherlands, for instance, uh, numerous um, stories of, well, young women in high school whose image was shared on a WhatsApp group in the school and within days um, had been seen by pupils mm-hmm. from schools in the whole district and a few days later, basically everywhere, right? Uh, family members stumbled upon it, uh, people who you really don't, um, who they really don't want to well, uh, show this side of themselves. Of. I think, um, like, when we talk about this, because th- that last point you raised is, is very important, too, um, mentioning high schools, because this is an issue that, from the statistics I've looked at, is disproportionately affecting young people, and it's probably because of their access to the Internet, because of their dependency. Mm-hmm. And when I hear this, um, uh, for example, there was a study done by, by the American Psychology Association that found that around one in... One in 25 women have been affected, affected by this. But when you look at women under the age of 30, it's one in 10. And, and the, the most har- harmed demographic is between the ages of 18 and 20. And when I hear this, and I see that it's such young people, um, and when I hear the, the, the growing nature of it, like the fact that it's increasing, yeah. 
I find it hard to understand why legislation is not being made. Like, do do you know? Like, is it the complications of this scenario of of the of the policing of it? Because you've talked about how complex of an issue this can be. Why is it so difficult for governments to to draft up legislation and, and enact stronger rules about this? Well, I'm not a legal scholar, so I don't know why this would be sure. Uh, what the what the particular legal complexities are. Um, I do know that in the Netherlands, um, currently, legislation is being developed that makes uh, or turns the circulation of such imagery into a punishable offense. Mm -hmm. Um, So not just a copyright offense. Uh, So I don't know why it would be so complicated. Um, What I do think uh, complicates this is also how the technology works. I mean, in the end, what are you going to do? Are you going to... um, go after all of these high school kids who mm-hmm. who have received or sent on a picture that was in a WhatsApp group yeah. or, or that was on Facebook. Um, of course, that's not really realistic. Um, uh, so what, would, what should the repercussions be? Uh, should they only be legal? Um, what is realistic? I mean, these are all really difficult questions. Together with the question, I think, um, that you really have to be careful um, that you don't inadvertently, um, that would be my uh, fear, that you don't inadvertently draw up a law that reinforces uh, a very limiting um, heteropatriarchal sexual norm, again, which is something that happened, for instance, with um, uh, pornography legislation in the UK, which was aimed, actually, at... um, 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 at protecting um, sex workers, performers, and also children, because it's always about the children, right? Um, but to protect um, children and performers in the um, UK, um, uh, uh, pornography law was drawn up that basically forbids certain types of depictions, uh, certain types of pornography. And what it resulted in, in the end, is that basically queer pornography didn't fit within those confines anymore. Basically, the only type of pornography that was still allowed was sort of like straight-laced, heterosexual, yeah. heterosexual penis and vagina sex. Um, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that kind of porn for as far as I'm concerned, but that's very limited. Mm-hmm. Huh? So, yes, I, I guess I do see why, why legislation would be, would be challenging. And, and, and I also think that what is needed is, is not only legislation, although I do agree there should be legislation, uh, right? There should be, you should be able to um, go after someone who you sent a picture for them to enjoy privately, which is totally something which I think fits within modern relationships, modern sexual relationships. If they are, if they are going to share that image, I think yes, there should you should be able to, uh, um, yeah, find some sort of legal recourse. Um, but I think there's a much larger issue, which is the very set of norms and values that produce pornography as something that can be weaponized, particularly against women, mm-hmm. but also against men. And here specifically, uh, gay men are more often victims, right? So what is it um, in our culture that makes being revealed to be a sexual person, that makes being revealed to be someone who has certain sexual desires, um, who has sexual pleasure, what makes that something that 
can threaten your standing in your social circle, um, in your profession, etc., etc. Um, and for that, we are all accountable, right? Uh, not only by not circulating these kinds of images when you find, and and don't, of course, but people also exploit, I think, the possibilities of the culture and society that they are in. Um, and we are also all part of um, uh, of that society, and we participate in those cultural processes. Um, so in that sense, I think I'm, I'm sort of firmly located along the lines of pro-sex feminists who say, well, actually, better pornography, better depictions of sex, and mm -hmm. better, I mean, more diverse, right? More inclusive, more varied, more realistic, more, let's say, uh, participatory, right? Those kinds of depictions of sex actually can play a very important role in undermining or taking away some of the power of those very repressive sexual norms mm -hmm. that are the exact sexual norms that can turn pornography into a weapon in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I think it also something that we're seeing growing is is the reduct because this is a, a huge problem I think as well in how it's weaponized is, is the victim blaming aspect of this. And it's it's especially among the younger generation this growing fight against this concept of victim blaming. Um uh, in that study I mentioned earlier, actually, it found that 72% of people will not seek help. And the main reason being just in pure embarrassment, that they're, they're afraid that they will be ostracized because of this. And when you hear, you know, celebrities on, on um, I remember uh, there, there was this, an actress who, whose, you know, news were leaked on Twitter. And the response uh, from this panel of, of celebrities who have a show was, well, why did you take these photos? You know, it's, it's immediately... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. immediately her fault for, for ever having taken them. And I think this attitude is something that we can do um, to, 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 to fight against it as well, is, is turning around this attitude yeah. towards being a victim. Yeah, and, and in this example, I think it's, uh, it's also kind of interesting that this actress, uh, uh, her nudes were leaked uh, in social media, and then as a way of claiming back her power, uh, she posted her pictures on her account. Yeah. And then the, the backlash uh, from this uh, other group of celebrities was that she shouldn't have taken the pictures in the first place. And it's like, it also comes back to that, like how we uh, reply to the situation. Are we holding accountable the person whose nudes are being leaked for taking the pictures or the person who's actually leaking them? Mm -hmm. And in this case, also, uh, I think it comes back to, to the idea of empowering women to take control over their sexuality as well and not just, uh, yeah. as you said before, uh, yeah. making them portray themselves as pure in regards to, like, sex. Yeah, yeah, at an individual level. So, uh, so victim blaming, I think, is a strategy to turn Shift structural problems yeah. back into individual problems, right? Yeah. right? Yeah. So she shouldn't have taken the pictures in the first place. It's her problem. Um, that's a way to, um, yeah, sort of cover up the larger structural issue of, but why are women who take, why are women who take um, nude pictures of themselves or share nude images of themselves shameful? And why are not people who look at those images and enjoy those images shameful. Why do we understand the sexual transaction to be like that? That 
it is shameful to participate uh, in this exchange as someone who is being looked at and desired uh, and not as the someone who is doing the looking and the desiring. That is um, deeply ingrained uh, heteronormative cultural practice based on assumptions um, that seem almost natural but are not right that we can deconstruct also some of those norms and assumptions we can um, try to resist normalizing that way of thinking um, and i think that would be um, the gesture against victim blaming also um, victim blaming is turning a structural issue into a case of individual responsibility again but we are not just individuals who are responsible for keeping our individual selves safe within our social setting. We are also all part of society, participate in, uh, um, um, in certain upholding or resisting certain social practices. And some of us have um, more privilege, more agency, right, uh, within that social setting, and therefore more responsibility, um, more accountability, I think, for thinking through their own participation in upholding or resisting harmful social norms. So uh, also uh, I want to ask you, you mentioned just now that uh, if the depiction of women in pornography and uh, the sexual depiction of women changed in the media, then we there our response to these kind of uh, sort of assaults would change as well. So if the media, and, uh, and I believe the media, it's a bit of a reflection of us as societies and our structures, if they are uh, reflecting back on a heteronormative, patriarchal so society, does society have to change first before the media changes? Or does the media change first? Or is it something that goes parallel and like hand in hand? And uh, with that in mind, uh, where do you see this uh, kind of discourse, this narrative going mm -hmm. forward in the future? All right. Oh, that's a good and a complicated <laughs> question. I think... What I'm interested in is exploring the different, the different locations from where we can articulate different forms of accountability and different forms of agency to do something about this. And so the media is an abstract concept, right? But uh, consists of um, both uh, technologies and content uh, and makers and viewers or consumers, mm -hmm. right? Um, and at all those places, I think, you can find um, forms of um, agency and therefore um, ways to think about accountability. Um, at the level of um, technology, for instance, we can think about um, what type of media literacy and media awareness do people need in order to be able to participate uh, safely and thoughtfully. In terms of media makers and content, I think an exploration of different ways of showing and seeing and viewing sexuality is in order. And at the level of media consumers and viewers, we can participate also in new practices of looking. So looking at these kinds of um, images in a different way, questioning uh, stereotypes and cliches of, for instance, the... Well, irresponsible, silly girl who uh, knows better than to, or should know better than to send her pictures around. And we can, we can also uh, choose to reinterpret or interpret differently those kinds of narratives rather than thoughtlessly repeating and reproducing them. So 
we are all accountable for what's happening in the world that we live in. Um, and uh, um, the more power or agency you have within a certain location, the more, uh, I think, of that responsibility you should be able to um, uh, take on. Um, but this isn't a chicken or egg kind of thing. And the media has never um, given a one-on-one -on -one representation of reality, of pre-existing reality. Um, but reality has also never simply shaped itself after the Im imaginations that the media present with us. It's a much more complex entanglement with um, different uh, people, different institutions, different systems uh, in place at the same time. And uh, we are participate in, in all of them at some point and in some way. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. It sounds completely true. I think it's a I think it's a wonderful place to take away for the viewers at home is is the most that we can do because it might feel frustrating as an individual in this interconnected society that we live in that to, to, to feel almost powerless and how to change this. But the the most that you can do is to take power over your own agency to 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 really reflect on how you are interpreting these images. You know, are are you being implicitly given a narrative and if you feel like you are, it's, you know, you have the power to, to change that and to also then distribute that new perspective that you've created. And I think from the conversation, that's what I'm taking away. And I think our viewers yeah. should take away too. That's a, that's the, the point, I think, at the end of the day, as individuals, we cannot change it all, but we, we can, can do our part. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, thank you, Sina, for coming here and having this super interesting conversation on the topic. Uh, we would love to stay me. and talk longer, but... I think it's good to start uh, stop here. Uh, and to everyone at home, thanks for listening. Uh, there are new episodes of Let's Talk About X every two weeks, so stay tuned. Uh, we are a community-driven podcast, so if there is an interesting topic of which you would like to hear about or you are an expert on and would love to be on the show, please don't hesitate to contact us over Instagram at x.tudelft. Until next time. <laughs>